0: Welcome to Fearmonger Fridays this Monday, Iran War Edition. Much of the news connected Earth was all a Twitter this past week with the conflict with Iran, or, as the internet phrased it, World War Three somehow having forgotten that the U.S. and Iran have been at each other's throats for 40 years, with Iran sponsoring terrorism, fomenting regional conflict, and just generally engaging in mischief. In the most recent sense, this started just after midnight, on the 3rd of January, when the U.S. launched a drone-based assassination of Qasem Soleimani, who was the general at the head of Quds Force. Quds Force is the arm of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps that's charged with raising militia forces and then training those militias to carry out Iranian objectives in the Middle East and the world. Think of them as an even more militarily proactive CIA. Quds was formed after the Iranian Revolution in 1979. It supported the Kurds who opposed Saddam Hussein in the Iran-Iraq War. It created Hezbollah in Lebanon and fought against, then supported, the Taliban, depending on who the Taliban was allied with at the time. All that you need to know about the motivation of Quds Force is in the name. Al-Quds means the holy, the holy sanctuary, and that means Jerusalem. They are literally the Jerusalem force, and until they see their flags over the whole of that city, they will not be finished. The U.S. Defense Department released a statement that confirmed what Iranian state media was already saying, that Soleimani and six other people were killed in the drone strike. The statement said, General Soleimani was actively developing plans to attack American diplomats and service members in Iraq and throughout the region. General Soleimani and his Quds force were responsible for the deaths of hundreds of American and coalition service members and the wounding of thousands more. This responsibility, the Department of Defense spoke of, goes back about a decade to the introduction of EFPs into Iraq by Quds Force to their proxy militias. An EFP is an explosively formed penetrator. It's an anti-tank weapon, and it really did a significant amount of damage to U.S. forces in Iraq, if not in numbers, certainly psychologically. So the Iranians, through Quds Force, supported and continue to support the Shia militias, and are proactively and overtly anti-American in the region and in the world. It isn't as if Qasem Soleimani was an innocent bystander. He had a lot of blood on his hands, but it's important to put into perspective exactly who he was. He wasn't some shadowy figure lurking in a cave. He was among Iran's top generals and the very visible leader of Quds Force, U.S. intelligence had been following his career, and his rising star, for years. Killing Qasem Soleimani was very much like, or exactly like, Iran openly and publicly assassinating Gina Haspel, the director of the CIA, or firing a missile at General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. It was a major slap to the Iranians. Whether the US or the world is safer now because of it is unclear. The second in command of Qud's force has stepped up and things will go on as they had before. The only change being that Qasem Soleimani had a minor cult of personality that Brigadier General Esmail Ghani doesn't seem to possess. Nevertheless, the day after the assassination, he picked up where Soleimani left off and declared, we tell everyone, Be patient and see the dead bodies of Americans all over the Middle East. After a great deal of back-and-forth and and excessive international hand-wringing and fears of World War III, Iran retaliated on the 8th of January with between 15 and 22 ballistic missiles in four volleys. Depending on reports, these were targeted at American positions in Iraq, particularly Al-Assad Airbase. The missiles were either Fateh or Zol Faghar, short-range ballistic missiles launched from inside Iranian territory, which is a move that's exceedingly rare, given the number of proxies under Iranian control. The missiles typically carry 1,100-pound high-explosive warheads, and satellite imagery of the impact sites shows the kind of damage you might expect from that, It's extremely localized, with modest craters and some collateral fire damage. No one was killed or injured in the attack. And that was almost certainly by design. While the missiles did have some in-flight failures, and I'll post some pictures of those, they didn't seem to have any targeting failures. In fact, the targeting seems to have been very precise. So there's no doubt that considerable effort went into not killing U.S. or Iraqi personnel, thereby defusing the shooting war. And, in case the U.S. intelligence assets in Iran failed to inform their handlers of the imminent attack, Iran added another layer of safety, by directly informing Iraq of its intent to launch the missile strike, which is generally not something militaries do if their intent is to actually inflict any meaningful damage. The office of the Iraqi Prime Minister said that they had received an official verbal message from the Islamic Republic of Iran that the Iranian response to the assassination of Qasem Soleimani had begun, or would begin shortly, and that the strike would be limited to where the U.S. military was located in Iraq. So this wasn't so much a missile strike as a mode of communication. And that message was, open warfare, a hot war, was not something Iran was looking for at the moment. I should also mention the Ukraine International Airlines shoot-down that was the result of human error brought on by the tensions. As I record this, the protests that had originally begun against the United States and its killing of Qasem Soleimani, have transitioned into anti-government protests because of the shootdown. All 176 people aboard were killed when the plane was mistaken as hostile. So, there are costs, usually unintended, when a spiral of escalation takes over for diplomacy and common sense. With all of that, The US and Iran did move into an uneasy truce, but the incident is probably the start of a new phase in the long-running Cold War between Washington and Tehran, probably evolving into more proxy conflict and cyber warfare in 2020. And speaking of cyber warfare, another absolutely fascinating sideshow in the conflict spasm last week was a clever bit of social engineering that sent U.S. teenagers into a triggered frenzy of fear and existential crisis. In the days after the assassination of Soleimani, when the tension was rising, text messages appeared on the phones of teenagers across the country purportedly from the U.S. Army, notifying them of their status as draftees, and instructing them to report to the nearest recruiter for immediate departure to Iran. Ignoring the fact that you, as an educated listener, could immediately find ten reasons why this proposition is comically absurd, the population the message targeted, namely American teenagers, is entirely without the tools to understand the difference between fact and fiction when it appears on their phones. Honestly, the draft is so remote in the social consciousness that the very real requirement to register for selective service is often met with an unrestrained disbelief. In fact, I'll tell you a story. Once upon a time, before my current incarnation, When I was teaching history to teenagers, I once tried to explain that the boys, boys only, then as now, were legally required to go and register for the draft. There was not a single one of them in that classroom who had ever heard of such a thing, and a detachment of particularly motivated students descended on the principal to inform her that I was making things up to scare certain politically left-leaning students into making morally repugnant choices. To her credit, she did explain that they could do it online or at the post office, whichever was easier, at which at least a few of them became convinced that a conspiracy was afoot. So I was in no way surprised when this brief tussle with Iran resulted in a fraud that played on both a chronic ignorance of the history of U.S.-Iranian relations, And a generation-wide disbelief that anybody, government especially, could make anybody do anything they didn't want to, particularly when it might make them feel bad. Well, they have my sympathies. With the state of civic education what it is in the United States, you could probably send a text one morning offering a government-subsidized PlayStation from the Department of Entertainment and have a line nine miles long by lunch. Nick Thompson, who is the editor-in-chief at Wired, told the wider public that the whole episode was undoubtedly a scam designed to make people panic during a tense time. That much I agree with. But what he said next seems entirely a product of his own worldview. And I can't fault him for that. He is at the head of a massive technology information organization based in San Francisco and that's the lens through which he and Wired generally sees the world. He said this is a trap. They're trying to get you to respond and then at some point when they've got you in a more compromised position they'll request money. There's no doubt in my mind that it's a bunch of people who have run a bunch of other scams and know how this works and how the psychology works. And they're sitting there saying, hey what's the issue with the most emotional intensity right now? Oh It's the killing of Soleimani. Let's get in on that. Except that in the days that followed, the scam never materialized. And that's why I think he's wrong. I actually know he's wrong. Why on earth wouldn't someone observing current and past events immediately suspect the Iranians themselves? Destabilizing public support for conflict, particularly amongst the young creating fear and resentment for the actions of the president, and by that I mean that his assassination order has started a war that has caused a draft, even if it didn't actually, and most of all, testing a means by which a storm front of fear could be blown up by some mass texts to the largely ignorant youth. But what do I know, right? I mean... The Iranians don't have any history of hacking or cyber warfare against the United States, surely. Here are some words that Nick Thompson at Wired would understand. Holmium. Magnalium. Elfenteem. Refined kitten. Like so many words that Silicon Valley has bestowed upon us in the 21st century, these words are gibberish. But they all refer to something called Advanced Persistent Threat 33. APT 33 is a group of Iranian-sponsored hackers. For the last year, this Iranian state-sponsored hacker collective has been attempting to gain access to critical U.S. infrastructure, including oil, gas, and electric grids, through a process called password spraying. It is just as clumsy, messy, and imprecise as it sounds, with common passwords applied to hundreds or thousands of accounts in systems across the U.S. Hackers use it because the sheer volume allows a group to build up its catalog of access quickly. And it works because sometimes no one thought to change the credentials after the new equipment was installed. So the password to the Toledo, Ohio power grid is still just password. In the last year, they've also tried to gain access to the Department of Energy and the Department of Defense with phishing emails. Those are the emails that look like they're from your system administrator, but actually they're from the Ayatollah. The Iran war draft text message scam might be slightly more sophisticated than password spraying, but its attempt to sow wide-ranging discord has Iranian Hacker Collective written all over it. But this cyber cold war isn't particularly new. One of the most well-known open secrets of the last decade is the Stuxnet worm. I know, that's more Silicon Valley nonsense. But Stuxnet was a virus developed by the United States and Israel to infiltrate the Iranian Natanz Nuclear Fuel Enrichment Facility. It was introduced on a USB drive and then executed a code that caused the gas centrifuges used to enrich the uranium to begin to vibrate. As the controlling software showed that everything was fine, the centrifuges literally shook themselves apart. There is some debate as to how effective this all ended up being, but it does offer another window on what the attacks of a cyber war might look like. Imagine if the current cyber cold war with covert actions that destroy a few centrifuges or throw teenagers into panic attacks or even potentially manipulate the outcome of elections suddenly became a hot cyber war with damage to infrastructure that carried with it a real human cost. Say planes falling out of the sky or whole cities going dark or every stoplight in California suddenly turning green for all directions. I wonder at what point a symmetrical response to a cyber attack becomes a conventional military attack on the country that started it. At this point, the U.S. and Iran will keep sniping at each other. Of course, it's entirely possible that with poor judgment, Or with the right confluence of events, the U.S. and Iran could get into a conventional hot war. But it would take a lot of poor judgment. A lot. And a confluence of events that I couldn't even be able to conceive of at the moment. So, for now, keep your ears to the internet. Because in the short term, at least, that's where this war, cold or otherwise, will be fought. Probably. Thanks for listening to The Vault. This short reflection on frightening events was researched, written, and produced by DJ Kinney. And that's me. Like The Vault on Facebook and Twitter so that the Iranians, North Koreans, and Mark Zuckerberg can more easily track you. Please like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or whatever your favorite podcasting platform might be. That really does help the show to grow and satiates our AI overlords. And of course, I'll post any relevant images or links on coldwarvault.com. Change your passwords, people. Until next time.